Welcome again. It is a joy to be with you this Resurrection Sunday, or as it's known at our 8 a.m. service, Easter for Slackers at 10 a.m. <laughs> the gospel started in the dark, but we wait to a more reasonable hour to come. Just kidding. It is so good to be here with you this morning. My name is Peter. I am also one of the priests here. We had an awesome time of worship this morning out on the back, and we are really joyful to be here with you this morning. A recent study that I was reading a few weeks back suggested, perhaps surprisingly, that to a majority of American adults, the Easter claim, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, was actually believable, was plausible. I say that because the Easter claim, I say it's somewhat surprising because the Easter claim is radical, is radically weird. We sung about it just a few minutes ago, opened the gate to everlasting life. We're like, where is this gate? Rose up from the dark domain. Like, is this a fantasy novel? And so it's striking that a majority of American adults in this study acknowledge, yeah, at some level, I find it plausible. However, the study also suggested that this belief, this possibility, made little to no difference in their lives. It bore little impact on the pattern of life that they lived, their decisions, their actions. We might say the conviction that Jesus rose from the dead elicited a collective shrug. Little to no use, little to no difference. Maybe you're there that this, this morning. It seems possible, but what's the difference? Christ is risen, and so what? This morning, I'd like to focus on the utility of the Easter claim, the goodness of the claim, the difference that it makes. And specifically this morning, I'd like to suggest that the Easter claim that Jesus truly died, and yet by the power of Israel's God rose again to new and indestructible life, makes it possible for us to live a better way of life together. You might say the resurrection makes for better neighbors. I'd like to do this by highlighting three things the resurrection does. First, the resurrection commends a way of life. Second, it confirms the availability of grace. And third, it contradicts our suspicions of scarcity. Now, to be clear, my suggestion this morning is not that we once were great neighbors and we need to return to that time. As far as I can tell, there is no grand age of neighborliness to which we all must return. Nor am I claiming that Christians are demonstrably better neighbors. Rather, the connection I simply want to make is between the content of the Easter claim, Jesus' resurrection, and its payoff, its possible payoff in life as we take that claim seriously and are changed by it. As we jump in, let's pause to pray. Jesus, risen and anointed one, we thank you that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead inspired John and Paul and Peter in the words that we have before us today. And we ask that that same spirit now would work in our hearts and in our minds such that we might receive the truth of your resurrection Perhaps lay hold of it in a way that is new and fresh, more fully than ever before, and be changed by it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So first, the resurrection commends a way of life. Demographers Gianni Pess and Michelle Poulon, about 20 years ago, described what have been come to be known as blue zones. Whether Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, Italy, Nicoya, Costa Rica, these regions, known as blue zones, boast the highest per capita number of people who are aged over 100. Since this description was popularized, this idea that there are particular areas where more human beings live longer with a higher quality of life, this idea of blue zones has been popularized. And in fact, a whole industry has sprung up selling the diet, the behaviors, the pattern of life that characterizes these particular regions. Packaging for us the longevity of that Okinawan Obachan or the vitality of that svelte Sardinian grandfather. Commending their way of life. Who wouldn't want to live longer, live better? In Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter recounts at this remarkable moment in history where the gospel is made clear to be for all people from every nation, not just Jews alone. In that moment, he points to Jesus and Jesus' way of life. It's there in verse 38. He says he went around doing good and healing all. That's a compelling description of a life. And the suggestion is that this was not just like a one-off or a few times that Jesus did this, but this was his pattern of life, the behavior that he engaged in. In our reading from Colossians, the Apostle Paul in verse 12 lists, in contrast to the verses ahead, the, the, the list before, these winsome qualities, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, imploring his hearers, imploring us. Put on these qualities. You want this kind of life. Elsewhere, Paul will link these qualities with the person of Jesus and implore his hearers, put on Christ. Take on the pattern of his life. Do you want to live better? Do you want to live a greater life? Put on Jesus. You might be here and have very real questions about the church, about Christians, and perhaps for very good reason. You might be unsure even of your trust in the Christian faith, your ability to believe these claims. But my suspicion is that Whatever questions you come with, whatever suspicions well-earned, whatever doubts you have, there is something in you that resonates with the life that Jesus led. However little you know, there's something attractive about him. And for good reason. This is a very predictable Easter point, but Jesus is amazing. <laughs> the life he led, the manner in which he engaged with all sorts of people, the way he welcomed strangers, the way he responded to even those who were opposed to him with grace and truth. It's all astounding for its goodness. Time and again in the biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, his actions, his words, they resonate, they cut through the ages. The writer Augustine pointed to Jesus and said his life is ever new, fresh and vital for us, confounding, but so profoundly compelling, inviting. Jesus led this remarkable life. That resonates with us. And yet, as we marked out just two days ago, that life of grace and truth, of generosity, compassion, of healing and doing good, resulted in his violent, painful, and humiliating death. 
Death on the cross. And if that is the termination point, if that is where the story ends, as compelling as Jesus' life was, at best it serves as a cautionary tale. He might be a martyr, a noble fool who tried. Fleming Rutledge, the preacher, has argued convincingly that if it ends with the crucifixion, chances are we would not know Jesus' name at all. If his remarkable life terminates at age 33 with this humiliating death, good as his life may have been, it is ultimately irrelevant. Like, I have an appreciation for Tony Hawk and Evil Knievel, older (laughs) reference there, but I feel no sense of compulsion toward their activities. I have seen injuries. I know where it leads. But why we are here today is that the end point of Jesus' life was not the cross, was not the tomb. Rather, his life passed through death. He emerged intact and glorious on the other side of it to never die again. And if that is anything, it is a vindication of the manner in which he lived. It's a vindication of the pattern of life that we find so resonant. It makes him and his life singularly worthy of consideration, singularly worthy of emulation. It separates him from the way of life of every other sage, every other religious leader, every other human being. He stands in a blue zone of one. Yes, loving in the ways that he did was costly. Yes, extending himself to strangers and enemies in grace involved incredible sacrifice. Yes, in a broken world, the way of Jesus is dangerous and will be opposed. But in the resurrection, we see that this true and beautiful way of life is victorious, leads to abundant life. It's vindicated by God, stamped and sealed with the approval of the living God. At the gym where I exercise, there are all these images, these icons put there on the walls for people to emulate. Buff and ripped, waxed and greased up. The message is clear, right? Do you want this glory to be yours? Keep lifting. Buy these weird supplements. Keep going. In Jesus, in his glorious body, we have a better, truer, greater icon. We have an image. It's like the ultimate before and after photo. You want that after picture. This is where the path of his life leads. So we clothe ourselves with the same qualities. We take up the same pattern of goodness. We follow where Jesus leads because his way has resulted in such a glorious end. The resurrection makes a new way of life possible because his life has been vindicated, shown triumphant and successful. This morning, consider the way of Jesus. Consider the way he lived his life. Be confronted with the sheer audacious goodness of his life and lay hold of it for yourself. But if that is where things stayed, Jesus as moral exemplar, as buffed and ripped icon on the walls, this would not be good news. And this brings us to our second truth about the resurrection. It confirms the availability of grace. I know of this conflict between two neighbors who shared a property line 
a conflict involving the paint color of a newly built and shared fence. Because the line, the fence was right along the property line, they couldn't agree on the, the colors on either side. For some reason, this irritated them, and the conflict escalated and escalated and escalated, to the point that one of the neighbors tore down this brand new fence and had it rebuilt one foot in on their side from the property line. And then they splashed on the other side all sorts of ridiculous colors. It's like a Smashing Pumpkins uh, music video or something, throwing paint. This final flipping of the bird to their neighbor. That level of pettiness is abnormal. That level of commitment is almost admirable. You're like, you like saw that through to the end. But the way that our relationships can become so poisoned is all too familiar, isn't it? We can identify with the way situations escalate and spiral because of a lack of grace, a, a lack of forgiveness. We are born into and caught up in tit-for-tat resentments, individually, in our families of origin, globally, among the nations and people groups. We live and go about our lives in this web of disordered relationship, broken promises, traumatic experiences. And all of that makes the way, living the way Jesus does impossible. We're caught in the web of what the Christian story names as sin. And if we are honest, the problem is not merely external, as though if the environment or conditions were right, we could do it. Our own responses, patterns of thinking and acting are marked by the same evil, the same lack of grace we see in the world. The same inward bent, the same exploitative impulse, prone to the same angers and hatreds. And some of you today, as wondrous and joyful as today is, as beautiful as it all looks, come bearing the weight of this reality acutely. The knowledge that you and I are implicated, that you and I are incapable of living the life for which we were made. It is out of reach. The life we see in Jesus is so wonderfully compelling, so inviting, and yet in and of ourselves, we cannot get there because of our pasts, because of what is true about us today. And this is where the resurrection becomes especially good news. Because Peter's claim in Acts 10 is not simply that Peter did, or Jesus did good and healed, but rather his claim is that Jesus' life was bound up in this grand story of God's grace. This story of God choosing Israel to be a blessing to the nations, to be good neighbors, and their miserable failure to do anything approximating that. And the whole context of Israel's history unfolds, the sacrificial system, the prophets, the devotion to the law, with this continual struggle to live up to what God had given them, to live up to the calling he had placed on them, in the context of his grace, but desire for them, in God's gracious intention to hold justice and mercy together. And Peter's point is Jesus, as judge of the living and the dead, stands at the center of this story. And that in his life, death, and resurrection, as we read in our psalm, the right hand of the Lord has done a mighty thing. That is, he has atoned, he has accounted for his people's failures, liberated them from the hold of sin. And Jesus has done this by becoming the sacrificial lamb for all people, taking our place on the cross, such that the judgment of our failures fall upon him. Him who, as God's Son, is able to atone, able to fulfill our obligation where we cannot. 
making peace, making shalom. One writer put it this way, God himself took upon himself our sin. And then God himself took upon himself the awful judgment we deserve. The holy God does not give me what I deserve. He does not give you what you deserve. He gives himself what we deserve. The consequence of all our failure upon him once and for all. But how can we know? How can we know that this audacious plan, this audacious giving of himself was successful? Because the grave could not hold him down. In resurrection, Jesus' statement from the cross, it is finished, is corroborated. The payment of your debt and mine is confirmed by the empty tomb. It's like you wired the money and you wait for the email or the text, right? It went through. The resurrection is that corroboration. Just as Jesus in Matthew 9 declares the forgiveness of sins and then is like, you think that's audacious? To show that it's true, I'll heal this paralyzed man. To corroborate the fact that he is able to forgive sins. His resurrection confirms the reality of grace in his death. The acceptability of Christ's sacrifice is driven home for us. The priority of power and power of God's grace are made clear. And so as we put our trust in Jesus, as we rest in his finished, completed work, the power of his resurrection is unleashed in our lives such that we can live differently, forgiven, in line with the grace that we have received. Certain in the knowledge that however much we might need to forgive others, so much more have we received. Certain that the grace of God is stronger than our sin, than the powers of evil we are enmeshed in in the world, just as the love of God is shown stronger and more enduring than death itself. And these joyful truths point us to our final point this Easter morning. The resurrection contradicts our suspicions of scarcity. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and choose to be jerks. Most of us don't wake up in the morning anticipating, planning to live selfishly, intending to harm our neighbors, to hurt those who love us, to yell at our kids. It's not a regularly planned way of being in the world, but it happens. Rather, we feel ourselves to be insecure, to be lacking, falling behind. Traffic was bad. The Wi-Fi didn't work. Our boss is ragging us. And so we're threatened. We need to secure ourselves, secure those closest to us. So others must be caught off, their feelings disregarded. Others must be used to make us safe. This idea that our sense of scarcity produces in us responses of anger, rage, and hatred to our neighbors seems to be the undergirding premise of this new Netflix show, Beef, with Ali Wong and Steve Ewan. Across socioeconomic lines, across ethnic lines, the two main characters share this sense of desperation, a lack of security, that causes them to respond with escalating rage toward one another. I cannot tell you this morning that the reality of Jesus' resurrection means you can live without limits. We remain frail human beings in a fallen world. We have to make difficult decisions among competing values. Prudence and wisdom are required in our lives today. 
But the promise of Jesus' resurrection is that alongside, within the broken world, the situations we inhabit, a new order is emerging. An order that is characterized by grace, abundance, and goodness, where there is no scarcity and no lack. A promise of enduring and new creation. Our gospel reading this morning specifies the disciples discovered the empty tomb on the first day of the week. And just as Genesis 1 tells us that God began his work of creation on that first day, so we are meant to see in Jesus' resurrection that something new and enduring has begun and is, in he is here now, today. And his glorious resurrection is the destiny of all who put their trust in him. They too will appear in glory, as Paul declares. So the theologian John Stackhouse recounts the story of Easter this way. Jesus is buried, gone, out of sight and out of mind, like a ticking bomb. The first explosion brings him out of the tomb, my Lord and my God. The next one will bring us all out, and it will rearrange the entire topography of the world, spiritual, political, medical, ecological, aesthetic, you name it. The lion become lamb will toss away the crown of thorns for a crown of light, and true religion and true justice will reign in him forever. Amen. True abundance will reign with him forever. Yes, yes, yes. Your life can be lived differently. Yes. As a forgiven and graced person, extending that same grace, you can share in the abundance of what is coming and is here now. Living as Jesus did, living in the power of his resurrection. Because of Jesus, our lives can and indeed must unfold in a different pattern. Not defined by the scarcity and lack we now experience, but informed by the abundance of God's grace and new creation. So life can unfold no longer in thrall to the powers of sin, hell, and death. They are present, but they are broken. And we can live in the sure and certain hope of Jesus' victory of new creation. We can live more lightly, freely, generously, and sacrificially for the sake of others. John Barry Meacham lived this reality. As a freed slave, Meacham facilitated the journey to freedom of the other 75 slaves held in bondage with him, sacrificing time he might have spent with his own wife and family. As a Baptist minister and founder of the first school for blacks in the state of Missouri, Meacham regularly returned to slave auctions to purchase human beings, who he then gave education and training to, that they might earn a living in their freedom. Following his own example, these trained and freed slaves would often return to repay the initial sum that Meacham had given for their freedom. This was not demanded of them, but was something they did to participate in and further the work of education, liberation, and healing. Meacham understood his work explicitly as a living out of Jesus' command, love your neighbor as yourself. And that ecosystem of reciprocal, sacrificial generosity is what the resurrection is meant to produce in those who set their trust in Jesus, who receive him as Lord and Savior, this life of radical, good neighborliness. That is what the world is so desperately hungry for. Will we receive the good news of Easter in its fullness? Will we live in the hope and power of Jesus' resurrection? 
With those questions in mind, let me close with a series of invitations. Invitations to become a better neighbor in light of the resurrection. First, consider Jesus' way of life. Whether for the first time or as someone who has known him for quite a while, in the coming days, in the weeks ahead, consider the pattern of Jesus' life as an example, as the example to follow, to put on. Beginning next week here, we'll be starting a series through the book of John, one of four biographies of Jesus. Read the Gospel of John. Join us. If you're here, you've never really considered Jesus before. We have some books on the back table there that are a gift for you. They involve taking a look at the incomparable life of Jesus. Second, accept the forgiveness of sins that is yours in Jesus Christ for the first time or yet again. And that acceptance really involves two steps. It involves first acknowledging the reality that our lives are not as they should be. That we have fallen short and missed the mark. That we have sinned. And second, it involves calling upon Jesus for help. However tentatively, acknowledging him as one who can help. A tentative version of this might simply be, Jesus, I need help. I trust that your life, death, and resurrection matter for me. And then telling someone else about that prayer, inviting someone else into that acceptance. Third invitation, in line with our reading from Colossians, set your mind, set your heart on things that are above. That is, set your mind on the reality of God's grace and goodness, his enduring love and faithfulness, and the sure hope of new creation. Your needs and mine are known and provided for in him who created all things, sustains all things, and is now redeeming all things. Set our mind, setting our minds on things that are above involves applying the truth of Jesus' victory over death, sin, and evil, laying hold of them for ourselves, such that the Easter claim gives shape to who we are and what we do. Consider the resurrection in how you live your life in how you steward your finances, and how you respond to those really irritating people. My final invitation is simply to ask. We come this Easter morning with circumstances in our lives in which we long for resurrection, in our relationships, in our bodies, in our captivity to patterns we cannot break with our needs for provision. And the sure hope of Jesus' resurrection is that in the end, all shall be well. Jesus' victory will be complete. But you and I can ask today for glimpses, for glimpses of that sure hope now. The good end to which we look made manifest today. So in light of the Easter claim, in light of Jesus' resurrection and all its goodness, do not hold back Cast your cares before the God of life who reigns over death. Be bold and call upon the powerful goodness of God that you might see and experience resurrection power and that we together might more fully follow in the way of Jesus. Christ is risen. And what difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.